cod is you know the all-important fish when it comes to fish and chips. This is Nick Martino. I'm the chef proprietor of Above Ground at Union Market in Northeast Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm the most British non-Brit you ever meet in your life. I've dedicated my life to this. And the good Brit non-Brit that he is, Nick loves fish and chips. It's nice and uh, tender and flaky once it's cooked, which is a, a nice magic place to be. He takes us into his restaurant's kitchen, a tiny little space inside Union Market, to demonstrate just how the magic is made. You grab a, a nice, nice size filet out, dredge it in some flour, and we dip it in beer batter. So we uh, let the batter drip dry just enough on there. We dip it in, front side down, couple seconds, start cooking the front side, and then we just let her ride. A fish and chips lunch here at Above Ground will run you about 20 bucks. Not cheap, but not crazy expensive either, especially when compared to what people pay for a lobster roll, 30 bucks or more. Martino tries to keep his fish and chips a little more accessible. I think cod is the every man, every woman's fish for sure. And it, it's, it's something that should be celebrated. It's got a lot of soul and, you know, not a lot of frills, but it's something that keeps economies going from uh, uh, all over the world. So I think eat more cod, buy more cod. <laughs> I'm Ruxandra Guidi, and you're listening to The Catch, a show from foreign policy about the seafood we eat and the impact it can have on our world. Today, episode two, Cod of War. Cod's ability to be the every fish has made it a staple all over the world. Not only is it the key ingredient in fish and chips in the UK, but salted cod or bacalao is an important dish in Spain, bacalao in Portugal, and also here in the US since 1962, when McDonald's first started making filet of fish sandwiches. Remember those? They turned to cod. Golden brown, plump, moist, and flaky, topped with our own tangy tartar sauce. McDonald's filet of fish sandwich. By the way, today, filet of fish uses Pollock instead. You know, when I was growing up, my mother made dinner, and I asked her what she was making for dinner. She might say halibut or flounder or something. If she was making cod, she would just say fish. And that's the way it is in New England. Cod is fish. And this is Mark. My name is Mark Kurlansky. Um, I'm currently working on my 40th book. I write about pretty much everything. <laughs> 40th book. That's, that's impressive. Oh, my gosh. I, I, don't know, I don't know how it happened. Well, one of those 40 books is titled Cod, a biography of the fish that changed the world. Mark wrote it nearly 30 years ago, but everyone we talked to told us this is the definitive book on the species. And talking to Mark, you can tell he's still very much an advocate. Cod was just ordinary because there was so much of it, and it wasn't expensive. The thing that originally gave cod its importance was that in the days before refrigeration and freezing, cod was the fish that salted beautifully. So it was the best fish for trade. Salting fish, by the way, involves curing it with dry salt. Archaeologists have found evidence of fish salting in 5th century B.C. Greek ruins in modern-day Tunisia. And because it was such a dependable commodity... Cod fishing became a way of life. You know, it, it just uh, 
became iconic because it was so important. You know, things that become important commercially become important culturally. Mark's research of cod wasn't limited to New England. In fact, cod is much more abundant in the North Atlantic, where the cooler waters made the fish extremely popular in the UK. Oh, here's a poem. British poets and authors have been waxing on about cod for centuries. Thomas Hood, in the early 19th century, wrote, Said he, upon this dainty cod, how bravely I shall sup, when whiter than the tablecloth a ghost came rising up. I've got a fantastic but rather long recipe for a roasted cod head from Hannah Glass in the uh, 1700s. Not just the Brits, the Irish, too. I got James Joyce, Ulysses, one of my favorite books. Oh, this is nice, you know. And people don't realize what a great food writer Joyce was. Hmm. Well, he was very descriptive. Let's hear it. Mr. Leopold Bloom ate with relish the inner organs of beasts and fowl. He liked thick giblet soup, nutty gizzards, a stuffed roast heart, liver slices, fried with crust crumbs, and fried hencods roe. Wow. By the way, fried hencogs row was part of the traditional Irish breakfast. This love of cod that Mark has so thoroughly researched is far from trivial. In fact, securing the rights to fish cod has been instrumental in shaping the laws that govern our oceans. Iceland used to be a colony of Denmark, and the Danish didn't uh, control the fishing grounds much, and so the British helped themselves. And then after World War II, Iceland got independence. And really, their whole central idea of independence was to control their cod stocks. In other words, we shall be free when we can fish at will. And when the threat of losing access to cod became a reality, this led to seaside confrontations that became known as the Cod Wars. They told the British, you know, you can't help yourself anymore. And the British said, well, we're sending in warships. And when you were researching your book and the Cod Wars in particular, did you find folks remember the Cod Wars? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Icelanders, a lot of Icelanders. But uh, in uh, the North Sea British ports of Hull and Grimsby, there were a lot of people around who remembered and had Cod War stories. My grandfather was on one of these Coast Guard uh, vessels where they would sail uh, up to the British trawlers and they would uh, shout uh, with a strong Icelandic accent, uh, you are fishing illegally in Icelandic waters, you must leave immediately. Among those who remember these Cod War stories is Gudni Johannesson. I was a professor of history and wrote before that my doctoral dissertation on uh, fishing disputes in the North Atlantic. So that's sort of in a nutshell why I guess you thought of me when uh, Cod was involved. That was back in another life. Johannesson has a different title now. I am the president of Iceland. It may seem a little odd that the current president of Iceland was willing to speak to us in his capacity as a historian. But once you hear about the Cod Wars, it'll be a little easier to understand. This period in history shaped not only Icelandic identity and its economy, 
but it also had major repercussions on global laws that govern who can fish where and how much. It also helped establish global fishing boundaries. You know, going from three miles to four, four to 12, 12 to 50, 50 to 200, uh, facing the might of the Royal Navy. So Iceland fought for the right to fish exclusively off its coast for up to 200 miles. They may be called the Cod Wars, but to be clear, this was more of an interstate dispute where the weapons of choice were net cutters and not cannons. The first of these disputes began in 1952. That's when Icelandic Coast Guard vessels, like the one President Johannesson's grandfather worked on, kept asking the British to leave, without success. But the reply from the British trawlermen would just be, uh, bugger off, and that would be it. Because uh, the Icelandic Coast Guard vessels had no means to enforce their will, because there was a British frigate usually in the neighborhood. But to understand why the Icelanders even felt compelled to defend these waters, you have to go back a little further in history. Again, this goes back to the time when President Johannesson's grandfather was still a part of the Icelandic Coast Guard. For him and others there, this was sort of like a continuation of Iceland's struggle for independence. Iceland became a republic in 1944, and the feeling was that while we had gained uh, political independence uh, then, we Icelanders would only be masters in our own house when we had gained full control of the waters of Iceland. But Icelanders' definition of full control kept evolving. If you've listened to season one of this podcast from Peru, you've heard us talk about EEZs, or Exclusive Economic Zones. This is the 200 miles that extend off the coast of countries where a sovereign nation retains exclusive fishing rights. But before 1944, when Denmark still ruled Iceland, the Danish had decided that Icelanders could only fish up to three miles off their shore. Initially, the Icelanders were okay with this. It sort of brought order to a chaotic situation. But gradually, resentment grew because three miles isn't that far. And then, uh, to cut a very long story short, in the Second World War and immediately after the Second World War, the U.S. authorities um, issued a couple of important declarations uh, uh, whereby the United States uh, claimed authority of the seabed around the U.S. coastline and also the right to regulate fishing above. And uh, the Icelanders uh, wanted to uh, follow as well. By the way, this was happening all over the world. By the mid-1950s, more than 30 countries had laid claim to expanded rights in their coastal waters. It led to conflicts between uh, Iceland and those uh, overseas uh, trawler men, because there was uh, fear of overfishing here. Now, let's not forget the reason why the UK started this conflict to begin with. Because Icelandic cod was such an important part of their economy and diet. News from the time shows that Iceland knew that pushing British trawlers further away from their coast could bring dire consequences. The trawler men catch well over half the total of fish consumed by Britain. But Iceland's government contemplates a law which may be a death blow to the industry. It all came to a head in September 1958, when British trawlers were banned from Iceland's waters for up to 12 miles. Parties called for emergency negotiations. Hence, at Geneva and the United Nations Authority, 
sits the International Conference on the Law of the Sea. Its object, to persuade Iceland and all countries in UNO to fix reasonable limits outside which the fishing vessels of any nation can operate. International politics seem a million miles away from the good hard life of the trawler men who bring the fish to our table. Yet if Iceland says no fishing within 12 miles of her coast, the trawler companies may go bankrupt or have to sell their fleets. So when the court war broke out uh, in September 1958, it was nothing that, uh, well, it reached the front pages in the, in the British newspapers initially, but then interest waned. But here in Iceland, this was always on top of the agenda. And you, you had a mass meeting in downtown Reykjavik where thousands flocked and people, uh, representatives from all political parties joined together and that doesn't happen often in Iceland, let me tell you. But everyone was in agreement and everyone clapped and there was thunderous applause when not one of the speakers said, we will not make deals with the British, we will beat them. And this unified the Icelandic population. So that increased Icelandic resolve. Score one for the Icelanders. After two years, the British begrudgingly accepted the new 12-mile line sanctioned by the UN. But in 1971, things began to boil up again when a new Icelandic government came to power. We have a new coalition here in Iceland, a left-wing coalition. And they come into power under the flag of calling for further action on the fishing front, as it were. And their call is loud and clear. We will extend the fishing limits to 50 miles, 5-0, 50 miles, on the 1st of September 1972. The extension of the fishery limits to 50 miles is not based on our selfish interests, but on our responsibility for rational utilization of fish stocks. And then the reply in Britain, and also actually West Germany, uh, well, hold on, we have an agreement here that the International Court of Justice will decide on the matter if we do not agree, which we certainly do not. We do not agree. We don't want 50 miles of Iceland. We are happy with the 12-mile limit. Thank you very much. So what was Iceland's response? To claim the court didn't have jurisdiction. They then called on their Coast Guard to confront any foreign vessels in the disputed waters. And that uh, quickly became known as a court war, ultimately, or initially meant as a sort of funny description of a funny conflict. I mean, you're fighting over court, ha, ha, ha. But it survived as a term for these conflicts, and it was a serious matter. It is a serious thing to uh, send uh, warships uh, to protect your, your fishing vessels, especially when, you know, you're dealing with another or fellow country in NATO. The conflict played out at sea and through proclamations made at the UN. British vessels, British naval vessels, have every right to be in this area, which even the government of Iceland do not claim to be other than the high seas. My prime minister said that he was willing to withdraw Royal Navy ships from the disputed area if the government of Iceland, for their part, would undertake not to interfere, not to interfere with the British trawlers. Mr. Heath went on to say that the British government and British fishing industry would accept a voluntary degree of restriction of the British fishing effort in this area. Remember that both the UK and Iceland belong to the same alliance, 
the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, since the end of World War II. Regardless, incidents off Iceland's coast were becoming more fraught, like in 1973, when the British Navy had to rescue a British fishing trawler after Icelandic shelling disabled it at sea. The Icelanders' shells had punched holes through the trawler's steel plates, some of them below the waterline, and at one stage she'd settled low in the water. Shelling was actually less common than another tactic the Icelandic Coast Guard came up with. We had secretly uh, developed a weapon. Basically, trawling is done. Uh, it's a very simple way of catching fish. You have a trawl and you connect it to the fishing vessel by trawl wires and then you haul in the trawl, you drag in the, the trawl and the wires connect the trawl to the trawler. But the Icelanders developed a secret weapon, as I said. Uh, a cutting device. So a coaster guard vessel would sail in the wake of the trawler, hauling in the trawl, and cut the wires. Sail in the wake, cut the, cut the wires. Yes, it was that simple. They'd cut the wires, which meant that the British trawlers would end up losing their haul. For Icelanders, these victories stirred national fervor. And I remember when we heard on the radio, I was just a boy at the time, uh, when we heard on the radio that a Coast Guard vessels, vessel had successfully cut the trawl wires, we, we celebrated as if we had, you know, won an important uh, football match or something like that. Uh, this was a David versus Goliath uh, conflict. Uh, the Icelandic Coast Guard was minuscule, uh, faced against uh, the might of the Royal Navy. You would have thought that the British would have gained an easy victory. But it's not enough to have supremacy uh, when it comes to warships. I mean, you, you cannot really use them uh, because you don't fire at a NATO ally. So you see why these weren't conventional wars where people could get hurt or killed. There was one more round in the conflict, which, as you may have guessed, meant Iceland wanted to extend its exclusive fishing zone. It was May 1975. This time, it pushed the limit from 50 miles to the full 200 miles that are still in effect today. Again, the British resisted. And again, Navy fleets were sent to patrol the waters. Things got so bad that Iceland threatened to cut off ties to Britain. Diplomatic relations with Great Britain would be severed if there still are British naval vessels in Icelandic waters within the 200 miles fishery zone. Iceland went through with that threat of severing diplomatic ties, and ultimately Britain came to an agreement in June of 1976, after Iceland threatened to close a key NATO base in the midst of the Cold War. A 2013 BBC documentary gets into how it all ended. The agreement was signed in Oslo on the 2nd of June, 1976. It ended distant water fishing in Britain. The devastation was summed up by Tom Nielsen of the British Trawler Owners Federation. In an interview with the Icelandic press, he said, You have won a great victory, and that I don't want to take away. The sad thing is that you've put a hell of a lot of hard-working and good fishermen out of work. All this back and forth from half a century ago 
might seem like an odd episode in British and Icelandic fishing history, but it holds much significance today, not just for Iceland and the UK, or its neighbors Norway and farther east in Russia. Well, in the wider context, Iceland was calling for uh, an international regime where you control uh, catches. It is now obvious to all here in Iceland and hopefully elsewhere as well that uh, fishing uh, as an industry cannot be a free-for-all maneuver where you just go out and catch as much as you can uh, because there is always enough fish in the sea. That is not the case. So if you put it in the wider context uh, of uh, catch limitations and quota systems, then uh, Iceland played its role there. Uh, there is still work to be done there when it comes to uh, ocean management and management of resources, especially out outside uh, the uh, exclusive economic zones that have been established around the world. So um, we played our role in that regard. And uh, if you want to understand the development of the law of the sea, then uh, I think you at least have to have a, uh, some knowledge of the so-called court wars in the, in the 20th century. The truth is, even before the law of the sea, fishers shouldn't have caught all the fish they ever wanted to. There just isn't an endless supply of fish in the sea. The incident brought a frenzy of activity to this patch of sea just inside the Arctic Circle. With British trawlers, the tug Statesman, the frigate Jupiter, an RAF Nimrod, and smaller Icelandic aircraft carrying newsmen congregating around and above the scene. Next time on The Catch, we'll be back in Norway, Iceland's neighbor to the east, which has also fought hard to preserve its fisheries. We'll see what the ecological impact of fishing is and how things like fishing quotas help protect both fish stocks and fishers alike. So now you know, the law of the sea, the 200-mile zone, is there thanks to the Cod Wars. All thanks to Cod. It's a landmark moment in history that's worthy of poetry. If codfish forsake us, what then would we hold? What carry to Bergen to barter for gold? Bergen was the commercial center of Norway where all the cod was sold out of. And I'm afraid cod did forsake them. That's Mark Kurlansky, author of Cod, a biography of the fish that changed the world, reading an excerpt by 17th century Norwegian poet Petter Das. <laughs> The song you're hearing is titled Cod and Chips. Thanks also to the president of Iceland, Gudni Johannesson, and Brit, non-Brit chef, and owner of Above Ground, Nick Martino. And that's it for episode two of The Catch. Our show is a production of Foreign Policy in partnership with the Walton Family Foundation. Our production team includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, and Evan Munoz. 
Special thanks to my co-reporter, Eskel Johansson. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a review and subscribe on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts, or head over to foreignpolicy.com where you can listen to our other podcasts and sign up for our newsletter. Thanks for listening. I'm Ruxandra Guidi. We'll see you next week. 